0: Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. The All Reds are there at the center door. And uh, the rest of you can open your Bibles to the book of Mark. We are in chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are paperback Bibles they are underneath the chairs in front of you, so maybe not directly in front of you, but if you look down the road to the left or the right, you might find a blue Bible, and uh, this passage is on page 495 this morning, Mark chapter 12. Uh, Can you guys hear the birds tweeting? (laughs) My hearing is not really that good, but I can hear the birds tweeting, so I... Hope that's not a distraction to you uh, this morning. Thank God for deacons. Deacons? <laughs> Might want to look into that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Noted. Good. Thank you, deacons. All right, Mark chapter 12. Just picking up where we left off last week in our study of the gospel of Mark. <clears throat> um, have you ever been in an argument? Probably the answer is Yes from all of you, Um, but I don't mean just like a quick, brief, little dispute that you might have from someone. Have you ever been in a prolonged argument? I mean, an argument where, you know, you get done with one little dispute and you think maybe the next time you talk to the person, you can iron some things out, but it just gets worse, and you just both kind of dig in your heels, and neither side is budging, and uh, it goes on for weeks, and maybe months, and maybe even years. Have you ever been in an argument like that? (laughs) That is kind of the situation that we find our Lord Jesus in here in Mark chapter 12. Maybe argument is not really the best word to use, maybe dispute, disagreement, um, but what we're finding here is our Lord Jesus is in a dispute with a group that we would call the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, the the scribes, the the elders, the high priests, the the representatives of the Sanhedrin. We talked about that a little bit last week. And um, they have been in tension for quite a while. In fact, the entire Gospel of Mark is just explaining to us this kind of growing tension between Jesus and these religious leaders You might remember all the way back in chapter 3, very close to the beginning of the gospel, verse 6, it said that these religious leaders were already planning to destroy Jesus, seeking a way to kill him because of this dispute. Um, A couple weeks ago, we look at chapter 11, Jesus goes into the temple, he turns over the tables, he drives out the money changers, and again, after that event, we read that these religious leaders were seeking to destroy him. So this is quite a, a dispute, quite an argument between Jesus and these leaders. So here we are in chapter 12. So what's Jesus going to do? We have a couple of not- uh, notices here that, that these religious leaders are, are trying to kill him. And so you might think that Jesus would respond to this by thinking something like this. You know, maybe, maybe I need to just back off this thing for a little bit. You know, let, let's let things cool off a, a little I'm going to walk away, and maybe we can cause this argument to just kind of go away, and we can um, minimize tensions. After all, this is getting dangerous. (laughs) These people are seeking to kill me. Is that what Jesus does? Does he back off? Does he walk away? No. What we find here in chapter 12 is Jesus telling a story that intentionally aggravates his opponents. Makes them even more dug in their heels against him in what we have come to know as the parable of the vineyard. And this kind of dispels the notion that some have of Jesus as this, you know, very kind of mild, winsome, tolerant person who never got in a disagreement with anybody. So much of Jesus' ministry is disagreement and controversy. And very often he did not walk away from it, he entered into it. And that's what we see him doing this morning, kind of raising the level here by telling this parable. So if you're able to stand, let me read this to you. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, (coughs) reads like this, and he, that's referring to Jesus, and Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. and went away. Holy Spirit, we ask, please give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, soften our hearts that we might respond in faith and obedience to your word as it goes forth now. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So hopefully you notice there at the end of the passage what is uh, something of a kind of an interpretive key for understanding this parable. It says there in uh, verse 12, that these leaders perceive that Jesus had told this parable against them. So they, they are understanding that Jesus is speaking to them, that there's something about this story that, that relates to them and to this dispute, this argument, this disagreement that they have been having with Jesus. And so we're going to look at some of the different elements of this, this dispute. And the first thing that we see here. And the story of Jesus in the vineyard is a great privilege that has been given to God's people. There is a great privilege given to God's people. So let's see how this comes out. First of all, verse 1, we read that Jesus began to speak to them in parables. Now, you might remember back in chapter 4 that we saw an earlier parable, the parable of the sower, So this is actually the second parable in the book of Mark, but it's the last parable we're going to see in the book of Mark. Lots of parables in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke, not so many in the book of Mark, just these two. But just for the sake of review, let me just explain briefly what a parable is. What is a parable? Well, a parable is a story. Very often it's a story told about very common, everyday kind of earthy events it's a story that has a particular spiritual lesson, but parables are almost always stories that have some kind of odd, perplexing, strange twist, something in them that, um, that you wouldn't expect, and we'll find that, and I'll point that out to you here as we, we go through this, but that's, that's what a parable is, and Jesus often spoke and taught in parables. And so this parable of the vineyard, sometimes called the parable of the wicked tenants, starts like this here in verse 1. We have a a, a man, a man planted a vineyard. <clears throat> so uh, he, he's uh, he, he's an owner of a, a vineyard, and he is getting ready to leave for a foreign country, and so he leases out his vineyard to some tenants who will then take care of his property. This is a very common activity in this time, very common um, business, common way to make money, a vineyard um, that is leased out to people who care for the property. And um, so this is how the parable is set up. This is how the story begins. You have an owner, you have a vineyard, and you have these tenants. Now, The first question I think we should deal with is this, how would these religious leaders know that this story of the vineyard was about them? Because it says very clearly in verse 12 that they did know it, they recognized that. What is it about a story of a vineyard that they would connect to them? And the answer to that is fairly clear if you understand the use of this imagery of a vineyard in the Old Testament, because it shows up over and over again Uh, in Jeremiah 2, in Ezekiel 19, in Psalm 80, and most importantly, or most clearly, in Isaiah chapter 5. So let me just show this text to you here, Isaiah 5, uh, verses 1 and 2. So Dustin, I'm having trouble here advancing. Okay, Isaiah 5, so here's how the text reads. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Now, does that sound familiar? I mean, you see the similar details between Isaiah 5 here and the parable that Jesus is telling in Mark 12. Very clear that Jesus has this in mind when he tells this parable. But then it goes on in verse seven to say this, the vineyard of the Lord of Hosts is the house of Israel. So it's very clearly stated here that the vineyard is symbolic of Israel. These religious leaders would have known their Bibles, they would have known the book of Isaiah, they would have known chapter five, and they would have recognized that this story was about Israel, therefore this story was told about them. So the vineyard represents Israel. But what we see here in verse 1, and I think the reason why Jesus is beginning with these details, is that Jesus wants to communicate the great care and love and kindness of this owner to his vineyard. Just notice the, these details. We saw it there in Isaiah 5, but notice there's a, a fence he puts up around the vineyard, a fence to protect this vineyard. This isn't just a chain link fence like we would say today. see today. Uh, a fence, and that day would have been like a big stone hedge erected around the vineyard to protect it. And he digs a pit for the wine press. So this is, uh, you know, people would be stomping on the grapes to develop the juice. The juice would flow down into this pit or this vat, and that's how the wine would be made. And there is also a tower, you'll see again in verse 1, that is built. This would be uh, a place where supplies could be kept. This is a, a, a big enough tower where people sometimes would come in and they would actually sleep there overnight. But the tower would also serve the purpose, of course, of people being able to get up on top of it and see if there are any intruders, maybe thieves, maybe animals who are coming into the vineyard. And they would not be able to recognize these and respond. And so the story here is saying look at the great care that the owner is giving to his vineyard. Now, if the vineyard is Israel. Who is the owner? The owner is God, right? It's pretty clear. Just as God or just as the owner here is caring for this vineyard, so does God care similarly for Israel so has God been kind and gracious and merciful and generous to Israel. That's the point that he's making, that Israel has been given an extraordinary privilege in all the history of the world to be called God's people. We can see this all throughout the Old Testament. God chooses Israel. God gives them his law. God dwells in their midst. He constructs a tabernacle so he can be near them. He commands a temple to be built so that he can be worshipped. He enters into into covenant with Israel. He calls them his treasured possession out of all the world. God has put his heart on Israel and blessed them and given them privileged status. And we see many examples of this in in the Old Testament here in... um, Deuteronomy 4, God says this, Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, signs, wonders, war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? See what God is saying... God has treated you, Israel, so well. God has done things for you that no one else has seen. I've I've spoken to you. I've delivered you from Egypt and done all of these miraculous things for your benefit. Psalm uh, 47 says something similar. He declares his word to Jacob. as another way of referring to Israel. His statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. God has dealt with Israel in a way that is unique and special, different from any other nation in the world. A great privilege has been given to God's people. Now, how do we apply this today? How do we transfer this text to to our situation today? We need to be very careful here because there are some in the United States who would want to say that the United States is God's people in the same way that Israel was God's people. And that would be an error, friends. The United States is not God's people. God has not covenanted with our nation in the same way that he covenanted with the nation of Israel. The United States is not God's people. So who is God's people? Who is it? It's the church of Jesus Christ. That is God's people those are God's treasured possession it's not the nation of Israel any longer it's not the United States today it's those who believe in the person of Jesus Christ and have been incorporated into the community of faith and Christians are spread out all throughout the world there are God's people in Iran in China in Russia in Haiti in Rwanda In Iceland, in India, they're everywhere throughout the world, but not concentrated in any one particular country. That's important to understand. We shouldn't make this error that the United States is the same as Israel. I think we see an example of this here in 1 Peter Uh, Here's chapter 1, verse 1. Peter says, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's talking to Christians who are spread out in all these different regions. They're not located in just one area. And then it goes on in chapter 2, verse 9, and he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Those are all... Descriptors that have been used in the Old Testament for Israel. And what Peter is saying is all of those now apply to Christians who are spread out throughout the whole world. We are God's people as the church of Jesus Christ. So, how should we respond to this? If Israel was privileged as God's people in the Old Covenant, how much more are we privileged as God's people? in the new covenant do you know what a privilege it is to be a christian do you understand what a unique blessing it is to hear and know the gospel i mean we take that for granted so often we forget how unique and special that is look what paul says in colossians i became a minister according to the stewardship from god that was given to me for you, speaking to Christians, to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. A mystery hidden for centuries that people didn't know about, but you do know about it. It's been revealed to you. The gospel is no longer a mystery. It's been opened up. We know who the Messiah is, Jesus of Nazareth, and we know what he came to do, to obey God's law, to offer up his life on the cross, to be resurrected from the dead. Abraham didn't know that. Moses didn't know that. David didn't know that. None of the prophets knew that. But you do. You know that. It's been revealed to you. You've been given the Holy Spirit of the living God who lives in you in a different way than the Spirit was given to the saints of the old covenant you've been given the fullness of god's revelation in the scriptures in the bible given to you old testament saints didn't have that they had parts of the scriptures but not all of it these are things peter tells us a little later these are things that even angels have longed to look into the angels in the heavenly, realm, the heavenly realms in the Old Testament were longing to know who, who is going to be the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Who is this Messiah? What's he going to be like? When is he going to come? Where is he going to be from? What's he going to do? They just longed to know. They wanted to know. And God kept it from them, but he's revealed it to you. It, it, it's a terrific privilege. Let's never forget the great privilege given to God's people. A great privilege to Israel, a greater privilege for us. But secondly then, let's consider this great sin committed by God's people. Great sin committed by God's people. How does the story continue? Verse 2, it goes on. And uh, we see that this this owner, this landlord, uh, this man who built the vineyard, uh, decides that he wants to get from the tenant some of the fruit of the vineyard, something to which he, of course, is fully entitled because he owns this vineyard. So, verse 2, he sends one servant to get from them some of the fruit. In verse 3, we find out how the tenants respond. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So, the owner says, let's try again. Verse 4, he sends another servant. And to this one, they strike him on the head. They treat him Shamefully. So the owner says, All right, let's try again. And verse five, he sent another, and this one they kill. They don't just beat him up, they kill this one. And then we find there at the end of verse five that this apparently goes on for some time. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. I mean, his owner is just sending one servant after another to get what is rightfully his. And these servants are beaten and then sometimes killed. So let's pause for a moment. Let's consider the symbolism here. What do these things mean, right? Vineyard equals Israel. Owner equals God. So who are these servants? Who are the servants that are being sent? Who who do they represent? And I think the answer to that is the Old Testament prophets that God sent to Israel over the course of their history calling them to repent, calling them to return to their Lord, calling them to give up their rebellious ways. And yet in almost every case, when a prophet was sent to call Israel to repentance, they were spurned and rejected and sometimes killed. Remember the story of Jeremiah and the whole book of Jeremiah is about Jeremiah calling Israel, Judah to repent and yet he is rejected. Eventually, he was just thrown into a cistern, into a deep well where he sank in the mud. That's how God's prophets were treated when they came to call Israel to repent. We got this nice summary of all of this here in 2 Chronicles. 1 and 2 Chronicles is just the history of the kings uh, of Israel and the moral decline in Israel that led up to their exile. Eventually, here's at the very end of the book, and this is kind of a summary statement. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people. When God sends a messenger, when he sends somebody to you to call you to repentance, that's God's compassion because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against the people and there was no remedy. This being described right here is exactly what the parable of the tenants is is describing. Servants constantly sent, constantly rejected. So one thing to notice here, friends, is the extraordinary patience of God. Sending one servant after another. They're rejected one after another, and he just keeps trying. You know, this notion of the God of the Old Testament being this angry, temperamental, bully kind of character, you know, that some of the atheists uh, depict him as. I mean, they need to look at passages like this. You know how patient God was with Israel? I mean, let's just consider that you have a condominium in Miami, let's say, and, well, you've got somebody who's taking care of it for you, and You've got people renting that condo over years, and there's a lot of money that you've been making, but it's all down there in Miami, and so you need to get your money. So you have an employee, and so you send him down there to get your money. And he comes back, and you say, well, where's my money? And he comes back, and you notice. He's got a black eye, and he's on crutches, and he's got a head bandage on. Where's my money? And he says, well, they beat me up, And they sent me away empty-handed. Now what are you going to do in that situation? Are you going to send another employee, try it again, and then another one after that? Is that what you're going to do? I assure you, you would have much less patience than the owner in this parable. And what we're intended to see here is this is God's patience with us. This is God's patience with His people constantly sending messengers. Constantly being spurred. But the, the owner here, he has one last idea. I'm going to try one last thing. Verse six. He's got a son, a beloved son. Does that ring a bell? A beloved son. Certainly they'll respect him. Certainly they'll receive him. They won't kill my son. So what happens? Verse 7, those tenants said to one another, ah, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Verse 8, they took him, they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. This is the perplexing twist. This is the part of the parable where it's like, I didn't see that coming. I mean, when he sends his own son, certainly they're going to receive the son, nope, not according to this, this story. They, they, they kill this son. Who would do such a wicked thing? Who would do something so scandalous as this? That, that's the question that's being raised. And Jesus' point is, as he's telling this to the Jewish leaders, you guys are the kind of people who would do this because you're about to do it. Because this beloved son is Jesus of Nazareth himself. Jesus is telling this parable about himself. He is the beloved son who has come. And what these chief priests, elders, and leaders are about to do is about to kill him. The greatest atrocity, the most immoral, wicked thing that's ever been done in the history of the world is the fact that God came to save us and we killed him. Boy, if you start making an argument for the the general goodness of humanity, you need to be reminded of this passage. This is what humanity has done with the Savior God sent us. We killed him. So this is what Peter says in Acts 2, men of Israel, this is uh, after the resurrection, men of Israel, hear these words, he's talking to the leaders of the church. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. In other words, you ought to know who he was. Plenty of evidence for you to know who he was, who he is. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So you can see why these leaders became so enraged as they perceived that this was being told about them. And yet, even though they were enraged, even though they had an opportunity to repent, they, they didn't. They, they didn't. They just dug in their heels further. And so, friends, I think by application, just one thing to say, uh, I've kind of, got two kind of applications, a personal one, first of all. But you know, before we get too hard on these Jewish leaders, I mean, just let me ask you this. I mean, how do you respond when somebody comes and challenges you about something in your life? How do you respond when you're rebuked, when you're admonished, when someone points out to you that you might be wrong about something? Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's an elder. Maybe it's something you hear from the pulpit. Maybe it's in your own reading of the scriptures. How do you respond? Do you dig in your heels? That's what these, these leaders did, and that's what every human being does to some extent. We do not like being challenged. The religious leaders didn't like their authority be being challenged, and actually, to be honest, we, we don't either, I don't either, I don't like it. I don't like being told I'm wrong, I don't. There's a challenge here about how we should respond, but let me make one other kind of brief national application here. Again, the United States is not God's people. We can't draw a one-to-one correlation between the United States and Israel, but I think we can say that as a country, as the United States, we have been quite privileged, we have been quite blessed, and we have sinned greatly against God. You know, It says in Proverbs 14, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people individuals are accountable before god but i think scripturally we can make the case that nations are accountable to god also a couple psalms here psalm 9 arise o lord let not man prevail let the nations be judged before you psalm 79 pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name judge the nations who rebel against you lord nations are accountable to god J.C. Ryle, I know I quote him quite a bit. He was a a British bishop uh, in the 1800s, but um, he's written something here that I think is uh, good for us in America to consider. He says, Irreligion or anti-religion, even in a temporal point of view, is the worst enemy of a nation. The state that begins by sowing the seed of national neglect of God will sooner or later reap a harvest of national disaster and national ruin is that us as a country do you think but it leads to one last point and that is a great judgment on God's people a great judgment so how does the owner respond to this after he sent all these servants he sent his son his son is is, is killed and so verse eight or verse nine the question is asked, well, what, what will the owner of the vineyard do? What's going to happen? And here's the answer. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. He is going to come in judgment. He is going to destroy these tenants. One of the reasons I, I think that our nation is in such a, a morally bankrupt place right now one reason, anyway, is because I think we've lost any sense of a coming final judgment. We, we just have, in a secularized society, you just kind of remove any conception of God. And if you don't have God, then you don't have a judgment. And that just begins to seep into people's hearts and give the impression that you can do anything and get away with it. We, we don't think of judgment anymore. There's a guy named David Berlinsky, not even a Christian, he's a, a practicing Jew, I believe, and he wrote this. He said, what hitler did not believe and what stalin did not believe and what mao did not believe and what the gestapo did not believe was that god was watching what they were doing that is after all the meaning of a secular society god's not watching and if god's not watching he's not going to judge and if god's not going to judge i can do whatever i want that that has to be part of what we're seeing in our nation and this is what we're reading about here. Jesus is declaring a coming judgment. Typically knowing that there's going to be a judgment, typically that alters people's behavior to some degree. There are exceptions, however. <laughs> and one of the exceptions are these Jewish leaders. They, they hear about this coming judgment. They hear they know that Jesus is talking about them. They know that this parable is mentioning a judgment of them, but they, they refuse to repent. Verse 12... They were seeking to arrest him. Just right over their heads. (laughs) They don't even slow down. Uh, let's, let's, Let's arrest him. Let's kill him. Let's do it. I mean, isn't that an incredible thing about the way the human heart works? Our sin can be just so obviously exposed to us, and we can, again, dig in our heels and our stubbornness and refuse to see it. It's another good question, friends, just how how do you respond when you're admonished? When's the last time you changed your behavior? When's the last time you admitted you were wrong? When's the last time you repented? Can you point to something in your life where you've repented of something? If not, maybe you're more like these Jewish leaders than you think you are. All of this, however, has been prophesied in the scriptures. And so as the passage comes to an end here in verse 10, Jesus says, have you not read this scripture? And he quotes from the 118th Psalm. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so what Jesus is saying here is that this was prophesied. This is a parable, but it's a parable with a prophecy. And and the prophecy is... Uh, based on Psalm 118, this idea of a, of a stone being rejected. So you just imagine people building like Solomon's temple, and there's builders, and they're presented a stone, and the, the builders look at the stone, and they say, yeah, that's, this doesn't fit. It's not working. We don't like it, and, and it's rejected. And then someone else comes along and finds that stone and says, ah, you know what? This actually is the best stone in the whole pile that this is a stone that belongs as a cornerstone. In fact, this is the most important stone I've ever seen. This is the stone that holds everything together, the cornerstone. And so this is fulfilled in, in Jesus because Jesus is the cornerstone. And again, when we look to the New Testament, we see this, that, uh, Peter's saying this in Acts 4, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then he goes on, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's the significance of Jesus as the cornerstone, the only savior for humanity, the one stone to whom you should turn, your only hope for salvation before God, this cornerstone rejected by the builders, rejected by the Jewish leaders, but made available to you today one other thing here that I want to point out. Isn't it interesting at the end of verse 11 there, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I mean, this is kind of a dark story, isn't it? I mean, there's a dispute, there's an argument, there's messengers that are sent, they're beaten, they're killed, a son is sent, and he is killed, and now there's judgment, and they're going to be destroyed. I mean, that is not the feel-good story of the year. And yet, it's marvelous, it says in verse 11. How how is this marvelous? And and the reason, or the how it's marvelous, is this. If you look back at um, um, verse 9, the end of verse 9, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Do you know who those others are? That's you. (laughs) And that's me. What's happening here is there is a judgment on the Jewish leaders for their rejection of the cornerstone, and what God does is he takes this gospel then, and he takes it to the world, to the Gentiles. He lets others hear it, and and the gospel goes throughout all the world, and it's reached all the way to Yorktown, Indiana in the year 2023. What a marvelous thing, Is there any hope for the Jews? Read Romans 11. I believe there is, but that's a whole other sermon, and I'm not getting into Romans 11 today. But for the purpose of this parable, friends, note how marvelous this is. The vineyard has been given to us, those who love Jesus, those who are followers of the gospel. We are now his royal priesthood. We are now his holy nation. We are now his treasured possession. You're hearing it right now, friends. You're hearing the gospel right now. Do you know how privileged you are to be in this room hearing the gospel, hearing about Jesus, the cornerstone? The question is this, friends. Will you reject him like the builders did, like the chief priests did, or will you receive him? Will you believe? Will you trust this Savior? He's offered to you today. Believe in his name and declare. How marvelous it is to be saved by grace through Jesus. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, for the way your truth is revealed to us, Lord, um, for the richness of your word, for taking the vineyard from one group and giving it to another so that we might hear the gospel and be saved. We're thankful, Father. Help us, Lord. Give us soft hearts, so that we respond humbly to your word, so that we don't reject your messengers to us like the tenants in this parable did. Help us to be quick to repent, but help us most of all to rejoice that Jesus has lived and died and has resurrected for us, and it's in his name we pray these things.